0: Welcome to Music for Life, enhancing the Armstrong concert experience. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. In today's episode, we will explore the well-known revolutionary composer Ludwig von Beethoven and his first violin sonata a piece to open an upcoming concert here at Armstrong Auditorium when we have violin sensation Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elizalde grace our stage on Tuesday, November 28th. Knowing how to follow this Beethoven sonata will equip any hopeful follower of classical music on the basics of how to follow a large majority of classical music performed at concerts anywhere. So stick around to find out what is so special about this musical gem by Beethoven, his first try at a sonata for violin and piano, today on Music for Life. As our show's tagline states, we are helping enhance the Armstrong Experience, the world-class performing arts series here at Armstrong Auditorium, a world-class venue in terms of its fine finishes, comfortable sight lines, and crisp acoustics. This season, we are exploring the music to be performed on the various concerts throughout the season. And on Tuesday, November 28th, We will feature Ray Chen, a young, charismatic, and supremely talented violinist making big waves in the musical world right now. He won two of the world's most prestigious violin competitions, the Yehudi Menuhin in 2008 and the Queen Elizabeth in 2009. His Carnegie debut and Musikverein appearance were met with standing ovations. In 2012, he was the youngest soloist ever to perform in the televised Nobel Prize concert. And still quite young, he is active on social media, with over 2 million followers on SoundCloud and an array of self-made quirky musical comedy videos on YouTube. And he stands as one of the musicians on the concert circuit today who is trying to break down barriers between classical music and popular culture. His program at Armstrong will be a dazzling display of fiddle fireworks, a program that we've dubbed Journey Across Europe, as it features repertoire from Spain, France, Belgium, Germany, and Hungary. More specifically, he will perform the violin sonata by Camille Saint-Saëns, the solo sonata by the Belgian composer Isai, the popular Spanish suite by Manuel de Falla, the ever-popular Hungarian folk arrangement by Vittoria Monti called "Chardash." and Beethoven's first violin sonata, which is how he will open his program. Today we will talk about this first piece on the program, and I hope, even if you can't make it to these Armstrong performances, that you will enjoy our discussions of these great masterpieces being featured on our stage. This Beethoven sonata in particular is so similar to so much classical music out there that if you learn how to follow this piece you will know how to follow the vast majority of classical pieces that you hear at any given concert. Before we do that, let's talk about Beethoven himself. He was such an influential figure in music history, and that really can only be an understatement. Many consider him to be the greatest composer of all time. He was born in Bonn, Germany in 1770, grandson of a Kapellmeister or a royal court composer and conductor, as well as the son of a somewhat musical father. Beethoven started piano lessons with his father, who attempted to turn young Ludwig into a child prodigy, much like Wolfgang Mozart, who had started taking Europe by storm a decade and a half earlier. Now, though his dad made him work hard, his dad was also quite unscrupulous. In addition to lying to crowds that Beethoven was younger than he was to get more people to watch his son, Ludwig's father was also an abusive alcoholic, beating his young son to make him practice properly or at odd hours of the night or morning. More formal lessons began for young Ludwig when he was 11, studying with a court organist by the name of Christian Neffe, for whom he became apprentice by the age of 12. And by age 14, Beethoven was being employed as a court organist and able to support his family, even, which his father became unable to do, spiraling deeper into his vices. Later in his teens, Ludwig went to Vienna, hoping to study with Mozart, but he had to turn around and go back to Bonn when his mother got fatally ill. She died not long after Beethoven returned, and so he was taking care of his derelict father and his brothers. By the time he could return to Vienna, the middle-aged Mozart had died, so Beethoven began studying with Franz Josef Haydn, innovator of the classical era. After the way Beethoven was treated by his father, he didn't respond well to authority figures, as you could imagine, including the 60-year-old Haydn. Haydn was both busy with other things and not very engaged in Beethoven's lessons. Beethoven started going to others secretly to further his education. Haydn stopped teaching Beethoven a couple years later after a few more disagreements. Beethoven gave his first public performance in Vienna in 1795, so now in his mid-20s, performing a concerto of his own. He became well known for his pianistic skills. A few years later, his own compositions started to be published, but around this time, he also started going deaf. He found it harder to perform as a pianist, obviously. This was an extremely rough time in his life, and people weren't as understanding back then about certain disabilities. Unsure about his future as a performer, Beethoven started furiously cranking out composition after composition. His urgency is one of the main reasons he's considered by many to be the greatest composer of all time. He composed an amazing amount of work for all sorts of different musical ensembles. But what's most significant about Beethoven, I believe, in music history is how he impacted and revolutionized so many aspects of music history. As piano technology was enhanced, Beethoven pushed the limits of this medium, as we discussed in an earlier episode this season when we talked about the music in the book The Piano Shop on the Left Bank. You can check the archives at kpcg.fm if you want more information on that. Beethoven's greatest innovative work, though, was done through his symphonies. He overhauled them in a number of ways. First, he retooled their structure. He took a typically shorter section of first movements and essentially doubled their length. In fact, his 50-minute Eroica symphony was criticized by several contemporaries for being too long. Symphonies were usually only 30 minutes long. He also changed some of the expected movements. That is, the third movements of most symphonies were minuet movements based on the stately court dance. For his third symphony and many to follow, he composed a scherzo movement instead, scherzo meaning joke, and it would be a joke to think of the aristocracy dancing to this unbelievably quick triple-meter music. He also switched the order of the second and third movements in symphonies, and he even added movements. His sixth symphony contains five movements instead of the typical four, and this symphony, the Pastoral Symphony, also gave a programmatic aspect to each movement, meaning that it wasn't just beautiful music. He meant the music to actually depict something, uh, in this case nature or parts of nature, which he wrote in the score what they depicted. In addition to overhauling the symphonic structure, he also doubled the size of the players he required in an orchestra. Beethoven's orchestra grew from 40 to about 80 in his day. A big addition to Beethoven's symphonic works was more brass, which obviously and simply gives the music more volume. In his ninth symphony, he even added a chorus. Beethoven's impact is still felt on music today. Not only is his music heard in countless film soundtracks, when the compact disc was being invented, the creator of it wanted to determine the length of music he felt should be able to fit on one CD. He decided on 74 Minutes because that was about how long Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was. Can you believe that? Most of the CDs we would buy from major labels had a maximum capacity of 74 minutes just because of a composer who died over 150 years prior to that invention. So that's a brief biography of Beethoven and the impact he had on music and on the world. We are discussing Beethoven's first violin sonata in the lead-up to a concert here at Armstrong Auditorium by violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Alisalde. To discuss this piece, a violin sonata, I want to review what a sonata is. Sonata comes from the Latin word meaning to sound in contrast to the Latin word cantata meaning to sing. So the sonata is an instrumental only work. In the Baroque era, the late 17th and early 18th centuries, sonatas were composed in a number of sections termed movements. Now, the number of movements would vary from sonata to sonata, but by the time of the classical era, the era of Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, the late 18th century and early 19th century, the sonata had settled into a standard and somewhat predictable format. It was usually a moderately fast first movement, a slow second movement, and a fast or very fast finale movement. From the conception of the sonata, these movements were not usually given titles, but were referenced by their tempo marking. So if you're at a concert and you see a sonata on the program, you will usually see indented lines underneath containing words like allegro, adagio, andante, presto, etc. All those are Italian words for tempo, or the speed of a piece of music that indicates the speed of the movement you're about to hear. And if you know what the basic Italian terms for the various tempi are, then you can already make a pretty good guess about the speed of each movement that you will hear at a concert. The fast-slow-fast movement format of the Classical Era Sonata has a nice symmetry to it. And the Classical Era championed the ideas of balance and symmetry. Not only did the overall movement structure serve that idea of symmetry, fast movement, slow movement, fast movement, there was usually a predictable symmetry within each movement. The first movement of most sonatas was always what we term now sonata allegro form, where it judiciously displayed two contrasting melodies. We'll talk about that a little later. The second movement of most sonatas, usually a slow movement, was often in what we call ternary form, three sections where the first and third were similar, and then a contrasting middle section. Sometimes the second movement was, as we'll discuss for our sonata today, in theme and variations form, where a melody is played, and then in very distinct sections, varied each time it is repeated. Either way, the lyrical, beautiful second movements of sonatas had a predictable and balanced structure appropriate for that time period. The third movement of most sonatas, usually the fast finale, was either in that symmetrical sonata allegro form, that I'll discuss more specifically in a moment, or in a rondo form. Rondo form was where a main section was repeated at least three times, with two or more intervening sections separating those repeated sections. So, a main theme presented in the A section A contrasting theme in the B section, and then back to the A section, and then a contrasting C theme, which I don't like to call a C section, and then back to the A section or A theme to finish the piece. The third movement of our sonata that we'll explore today contains this rondo form. In all three movements, there is orderliness to the structure of the work, and it's all based on the idea of clear, definable melodies. That's how you know what section you're in. One section is denoted by the use of this melody, and then you know you're in a different section when you hear an entirely different melody, and so on. Our third episode of the entire series, Music for Life, called The Art of Melody, discusses this idea at length. But let's talk about how the first movements of nearly every sonata were constructed. The composer would include in the opening section of the sonata, the opening section being called the exposition, two contrasting melodies, usually a bold melody to open the sonata, and then later a more lyrical melody in contrast. When both these melodies were presented, the composer would indicate to the performers to repeat the entire exposition again, so the listener clearly knew and was introduced to what these two contrasting melodic ideas were. Then came a middle section of this first movement, which came to be known as the development, where the composer took fragments of both melodic ideas, or perhaps introduced a new melodic idea, and traveled through various tonalities or keys. Even if you don't know the technical terminology as related to something being in a certain key, and then in another key, you can still, I think, when listening, get the sense that in this development section, that the piece is traveling, the music is traveling, with familiar tunes, down different paths and through different territories, so to speak. And then you know when all this traveling is done, when the composer takes the ear back to the original first melody, the A theme, which opened the work, and thus begins the section where we hear the two main themes contrasted one more time, this section being called the recapitulation. After that, the first movement usually ends, unless a composer puts some extra material at the end, known as a coda, which is Italian for tail. If you missed any of that description of sonata allegro form, how first movements of sonatas were almost always structured, I will go over it again when discussing the first movement of Beethoven's violin sonata number no. one, which we are discussing today on Music for Life. Beethoven wrote ten what we now call violin sonatas, essentially a duo for violin and piano. These are technically titled sonatas for piano and violin, and at this time the piano usually dominated this kind of musical duet, though today we'd think of this combination as featuring the violin, with the piano more of as an accompanying instrument. Well, the piano certainly wasn't ever an accompanying instrument in this kind of duo, but the violin getting to contribute an equal amount to the usually dominant piano was somewhat new when Beethoven wrote his sonatas, which is the case with the one we'll discuss today. We have discussed Beethoven's most well-known violin sonata, the Kreutzer Sonata, on our pre-concert talk for the Joshua Bell concert a couple of years back, which you can find in our archives at kpcg.fm or at SoundCloud or iTunes. Now, let's talk specifically about Beethoven's first violin sonata. It's given the number Opus 12, number 1. Opus 12 means it was the 12th set of pieces he had published. The number 1 indicates there's more in the Opus 12 set, which is exactly the case. Opus 12 is a set of three violin sonatas that he had published. But we will limit our discussion today to the first violin sonata, of course, Opus 12, Number 1. It was published in 1799 and probably composed a year or two before that, all during what we call Beethoven's early period of composing. Now, Beethoven is considered to have three composing periods. His early period, which went to about 1802, his middle period, which went from about 1802 through 1814 or 15, and the late period... 1815 to his death in 1827. So, early period, middle period, late period. During his late period, Beethoven challenged many of the conventions of musical style, producing some of his finest works, the most popular of which is his Ninth Symphony. ¶¶ Most of the music you probably know by Beethoven comes from his middle period, where Beethoven revolutionized much of the music scene and added a lot more dramatic flair to the sound ideal of his day. During his early period, Beethoven's music was less outside the box, as it would be later, and considered more traditional and more in line with his predecessor Mozart and his teachers Franz Josef Haydn and Antonio Salieri. Modern popular culture knows Salieri from the Oscar-winning movie in the 80s produced about Mozart's life titled Amadeus, where Salieri was portrayed as a vindictive, jealous rival of Mozart's. Now, the movie greatly depreciated Salieri's place in music history, especially considering the influence he had on Beethoven. In fact, the piece we're discussing today, Beethoven's first violin sonata, was dedicated to Salieri. Beethoven studied with Salieri informally for several years due to Salieri's tendency to give complimentary lessons to talented young musicians in Vienna, where Salieri worked as a court composer. Eight of Beethoven's ten violin sonatas were written in this early period, and the classical influence of Mozart and Haydn is obvious, though with his fourth and fifth sonatas he began stretching the bounds of the typical structure of the sonata. But this first set of sonatas is representative of his compositional style in this early period, and this first set was not actually well-received at first. One reviewer said this trilogy of sonatas went against nature, (laughs) that they were altogether too much work for no enjoyment, and that their only value was that they were a good challenge for advanced piano players who love, quote, excessive difficulties in invention and composition, that which one could call perverse. He at least admitted that Beethoven had potential if he, quote, would only deny himself more and follow the path of nature, unquote. Primarily, critics were not a fan of Beethoven's modulations and emphasis on more distantly related chords, as we'll see when we discuss this work today. I'll explain what that means later. Of course, today, the first sonata seems quite tame compared to what Beethoven later did with his piano and violin sonatas and compared to what musical revolutions Beethoven caused in his later compositions. Beethoven's Sonata Number no. 1 in D major is the standard three-movement format. The first movement is marked Allegro con brio, meaning lively with brilliance. It follows the typical form for first movements, what we call Sonata Allegro form, which I explained moments ago and will explain in more detail as we explore this first movement. The second movement is marked Theme and Variations in the tempo of Andante con moto. Andante indicates in Italian a slow walk, literally, and con moto means with motion, so a moderately slow movement. When we get to that movement, I'll explain what theme and variations is all about. The third movement is marked Rondo Allegro. Rondo, as mentioned earlier, indicates a form where the main theme is repeated after contrasting themes have been inserted. The Allegro tempo marking indicates a lively or fast movement, which we would expect for a final movement of any multi-movement work. So I know that's a lot of numbers to remember, a lot of sections. The movements are like sections, and each movement has its own sections, and so on. But hopefully, as we discuss each movement, it will break down for you better and more clearly. The first movement, as stated before, is in sonata allegro form. This means three sections, an exposition that is usually played twice, then a development, and then a recapitulation. The exposition and recapitulation contain two contrasting melodies. Remember, in the classical era, melody was king. A simple, clearly stated tune was the benchmark of any great work at this time. Composers would start the piece with the tune, no introduction leading into it or obscuring it, and Beethoven follows this convention with the opening of his first violin sonata. It begins with the violin and piano in unison, outlining this D major triad quickly and brilliantly. The A theme continues in the violin with this lovely, soaring theme. After that, the piano takes a turn with that soaring half of the melody, so that makes the opening A theme sound like this when presented. At this point, Beethoven starts traveling from D major into the related key of A major. This was very typical for sonatas at this time. Putting the contrasting melody, the B theme, in a different key helped the ear know that this was a different tune. The B theme goes like this. What Beethoven does with the B theme, however, is he has the piano play the first half of that phrase and the violin to answer with the second half of that phrase so it ends up sounding like this. After this presentation of the B theme, the violin and piano rock out, essentially, until the end of this exposition section. The closing material of this section almost makes it sound like the movement has ended, and you want to clap, probably, but remember we're not in the same key we started in. We're in A major, and the piece is in D major, and what Beethoven does at the end of that section is he indicates to the performers to repeat the entire exposition. So here's some of that closing material into the repeat. So the exposition repeats note for note as it came at us the first time. Then when the exposition is over, we know the piece isn't finished. We have a development section to get to. This is where the composer travels back to the original key, which in this piece again is D major, by going through various other keys and using fragments of the A and B themes. However, Beethoven was criticized at the time for using keys that were not closely related. The easiest analogy I can think of is like putting foods together where the tastes aren't similar enough to be paired typically, or perhaps using colors that, to that point, wouldn't have been considered matching colors. Beethoven ends the exposition in A major. We'd expect a related key, which musicians would know to be something like E major or D major, But Beethoven gives us F major. He does it softly, so it's not as jarring, and of course, we're listening to this with 21st century ears, so this isn't as shocking to us anyway. But here's the end of the exposition going into the development. So that's how the development section begins, and as I said before, you always know when the development section is finished because the composer brings us back to the main theme once again. And when the main theme is as bold as the main theme is in this sonata, it's easy to tell where that is. See if you can find where the development ends and the recapitulation begins in this portion of the first movement. Did you catch that? There's the main theme stated again, back in the original key of D major. Beethoven will now give us both the A theme and the B theme again, keeping both this time in the key of D major. The closing material will also be in the key of D major, so the piece ends in the same tonality where it began. So that should give you really clear signposts to follow as you listen to this first movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata in D major. I'm going to play it from the exposition the second time through to save time, and we're using a recording of violinist Guidon Kramer with pianist Martha Argrich. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we are exploring the composer Ludwig von Beethoven and his first violin sonata, an absolutely lovely piece that will open the program for violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elisalde at Armstrong Auditorium on Tuesday, November 28th. We just heard the first movement of that Beethoven violin sonata in a recording with violinist Guidon Kramer and pianist Martha Argerich. That movement basically follows the standard, expected format for the first movement of any sonata of that time period. The second movement, out of three total, as we would expect, is a slow movement. The tempo is marked, as explained earlier, andante con moto, Italian for kind of slow but not too much. But above the tempo marking on the score are the words Tema con variazioni, which indicates in Italian that this movement is theme and variations. Theme and variations movements are based entirely on one melodic section, and that section is repeated over and over, except composers find some elegant and innovative ways to vary that main melody. In the case of this movement, we have the statement of the theme first. And then there are four subsequent sections or four variations on that theme. The theme is comprised of four phrases, what we might call lines in poetry. The first two phrases are identical, basically, and the second two are identical to each other as well. What Beethoven does with that structure is the piano states the melody of the first and third phrases or lines, and the violin repeats each phrase in the second and fourth lines, essentially. So even though lines two and four, if I can call them that, sound like lines one and three, we, as the listener, enjoy some variety by having each instrument play the identical phrase. Let's hear the opening section, the theme of the second movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata. the second phrase just like the first but now in the violin the third phrase in the piano Fourth phrase, a repeat of the third, but now in the violin. So that was the theme of the theme and variations second movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata. The next section is Variation 1. Melodically, it doesn't really sound like the theme much at all, except for the final two notes of each phrase. It uses the exact same chordal structure, though, as the theme. So I'll play this first variation, but what I'll do while that recording is playing is for the first and third lines of the melodic material, I'll play the original theme over top of it so you can see how it is, in fact, based on the same harmony. In fact, it is a variation of that original theme. And I'll use a different sampled instrument than a piano, so you don't confuse it with the piano in the recording. So you could hear how Beethoven varies that theme in that first variation of this Theme and Variations movement. The next variation, Variation 2, has some quick violin passages over a bouncy piano accompaniment. Let's listen to that, and again, I'll play the original theme over top of it so you can be reminded how the theme goes and how this is a variation on that theme. This time, though, I'll play the theme in lines 2 and 4 so you can hear the variation start each phrase and then see if you can pick out the similarities between the theme and this variation. So that was the second variation in the slow second movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata, a theme and variations movement, as we are analyzing here. I played the theme over some of that so you could hear how Beethoven varied the theme. The third variation, out of four variations total, is quite different. He subtitles it minore in the score, meaning minor. What that means is this, the piece is in a major. But by lowering the third scale degree of the key of A, we get A minor, which sounds more sad, most people say. That also reminds me of a joke of what you get when you drop a piano down a mine shaft, A-flat minor. Anyhow, if I take the main theme, and I play it in a minor key instead of in a major key, we get this. Let's hear how Beethoven handles that in this movement's minor variation. So that was the minor variation, the sad remix, you could say, of an otherwise cheery tune on which Beethoven based this theme and variations movement. We are in the middle of discussing how the slow second movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata is a textbook example in many ways of how sonatas were structured in this time period. The fourth and final variation of this movement is subtitled Maggiore, meaning it's back to the original major key, the happy key. In this sweet final section, Beethoven gives the violin a lovely descant, so to speak, over a relatively busy piano part. And since I've played nearly the entire movement, albeit in pieces, let's hear just this final variation before moving on to the third and last movement of the sonata in our discussion. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we have explored the composer Ludwig von Beethoven and his Violin Sonata Number 1 in D major, a fantastic work, a fantastic first try, if you will, for a violin sonata, that will open the program for violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elisalde at Armstrong Auditorium on Tuesday, November 28th. More information about this event can be found at armstrongauditorium.org. We just explored and heard the second movement of Beethoven's first violin sonata, the slow movement, a theme and variations movement, and I played it in pieces, playing you first the theme and then discussing how each variation would work and then playing each variation separately. We just heard the fourth and final variation." We're listening to a recording of violinist Guidon Kramer and pianist Martha Argerich. Now to finish, let's talk about the third and final movement of this three-movement work. Again, even if you can't make it to these Armstrong performances, what we're discussing is some good basic music appreciation tips that can be applied to so many other pieces of music. As I said earlier, this Beethoven sonata in particular is so similar to so much classical music out there that if you learn how to follow this piece, you will know how to follow the vast majority of classical pieces that you hear at any given concert. The final movement, as stated earlier, is quick, as would be expected, and in what's called rondo form. Usually, rondo form means a main theme in what's called the A section, then a contrasting melody called the B theme, then the music returns to the A theme, then there's another contrasting section, usually called a C theme, and finally a return to the A theme. There can be other variants of this form, but that's the most popular one, A, B, A, C, A. In the case of Beethoven's first violin sonata finale, it's, as I analyze it, an A, B, A, C, A, B, A form. So seven sections, but the odd-numbered sections are all the main theme, the A theme. I will play you the recurring main theme to listen for, as well as the B theme that happens a couple times, as well as the C theme that happens right in the middle. Here's the main theme. Now what's interesting about this is that it shows Beethoven's proclivity to add accents or strong impulses where they otherwise wouldn't be expected. We call this syncopation, where you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Here's what I mean in this case. The beat is going along like this. So you would expect the melody to be stressed this way, with the stress happening on what we call downbeats. But instead, Beethoven puts the emphasis on the note that comes right after the downbeats, like this. Anyhow, after this statement of the A theme, Beethoven travels to a related key and introduces this quiet B theme. After that, we hear the A theme again, then we hear it in a minor key. Then we get to this sweet, lilting C theme in the unrelated key of F major. Eventually, the piano does a giant scale to crescendo back into the original key, and then we return to the A theme. After that, we hear the B theme one more time, and then our final statement of the A theme comes back in an unexpected way. It comes back subdued and in the even more distantly related key of E flat major. This final A section is different enough to where it could also be considered a coda, the finishing material based on fragments of earlier ideas that are meant to send the piece to its stirring end. So to close today's program, let's hear the final movement in its entirety. Before we close, I want to thank my assistant, Alexa Turgeon, a piano student here at Armstrong College, for helping me research and write this episode. Again, more information about this concert at Armstrong Auditorium, featuring violinist Ray Chen and pianist Julio Elizalde, can be found at Armstrong Auditorium Auditorium.org. You can like Armstrong Auditorium on Facebook or you can follow it on Twitter at Armstrong Odd. You can also like Music for Life on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Music for Life PCG. We will also include information about these upcoming concerts in our show notes on iTunes and SoundCloud. As promised, here is the final movement of Beethoven's Violin Sonata No. 1 in D Major Opus 12 No. 1, and I hope that this whets your appetite for this upcoming concert, and I hope to see you soon at Armstrong.